Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, today we are going to be doing a story back in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Um, I actually covered a story from Stillwater, Oklahoma. It was an episode called All American Regrets. This case that I'm doing today, though, it was really interesting to me because there seemed to be a lot of revelations throughout the investigation that made the whole thing seem like a whodunit. And I love when I'm listening to like a true crime and I genuinely don't know who did it. And that's how this case made me feel. Before I get started, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to Storytime Slayer Podcast. I am your hostess, Haley Lira, and if you haven't already, go check out my social medias. First, Facebook and YouTube, that's called Storytime Slayer. For Instagram, that's called Story underscore Time underscore Slayer. And if you just want a really good laugh, head over to my TikTok. It's at Storytime Slayer. With all that being said, all subscribers get a bonus episode each month that is ad-free. The subscription that I'm offering is currently through Spotify and Anchor only. I would love to hear your requests for your favorite subscription-based podcast sites. Um, I might be looking to switch. You can email me those in case requests at storytimepods at gmail.com. Now go check out my discounted merch and let's jump in after we hear a word from my sponsors. I have struggled with depression and anxiety most of my life. It has greatly affected my ability to work at times and connect with my loved ones. However, once I was connected with a licensed therapist, I felt so much better and found ways to cope with my anxiety and depression. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed, today's sponsor, BetterHelp, is here to help you too. BetterHelp has a broad range of expertise with over 20,000 therapists in their network, giving you access to help you may not have available within your area. And it is so simple to get matched with the help you need. You just fill out a questionnaire to assess your specific needs, and within 48 hours, you'll be connected to a therapist. The best part is you can schedule your sessions over video chat or on the phone, whatever you're comfortable with. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages with your therapist and it's all confidential, guys. Also, if you don't like your therapist or think they're a good fit, you can request a new one at any time for no cost. So join the 2 million people taking charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash S-T-S. That's betterhelp.com slash S-T-S. T-S. Sign up using my promo code to get that 10% off your first month, and I will have that link in my show notes. So, like I said, we are in Stillwater, Oklahoma. That is where OSU is. It's a college town. Very country, too. So it's June 8th, 1988, and 911 gets a phone call a little bit before 6.30 a.m. They were calling to report that their neighbor's 18-year-old daughter, Francine Stepp, was on their front porch crying, saying she'd come home and found both her parents had been brutally murdered. Francine had returned home earlier to get ready for work after staying the night with her friend Cindy Wynn. Francine was an 18-year-old redheaded freshman at OSU. So the Step family is your typical middle-class family. The house was pretty clean, but really lived in. You know what I'm saying? Like a little 
a little cluttery, a little messy. Um, Nothing seemed to jump out other than the corded phone was pulled off of the wall, not just the cord, like the actual dial box. And in the hallway to the bedroom, there was some 22 caliber shell casings on the ground. Other than that, though, everything seemed normal. Now, when police go in, the couple's alarm clock is beeping nonstop. Beep, 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 beep. Beep. The investigators actually said in their interview, despite the rest of the house seeming fairly normal, a lot was going on in the room that the actual crime took place in, which was the steps master bedroom. The alarm was beeping nonstop. They could smell the oh so comfortable, familiar scent of a dead body. And on the bed was 40 year old Mike Step. He was lying in the middle of the bed, covered in blood and butt naked. It was a very grisly, bloody crime. He'd obviously sustained several stab wounds to his chest and a gunshot wound to his neck. Curled up on the floor next to the bed with his wife, Dolores. I do not know exactly how old Dolores was, but she was in the same age range as Mike. Dolores was sort of wedged between her dresser and the bedside table. She too had sustained several stab wounds to her body. I mean, I would consider it overkill front and back, and there was still a knife sticking out of her ribcage. Mike and his wife, Dolores, who actually went by the nickname D, were super friendly. They were really well-liked, kind of life of the party, loved to cut up and make jokes, social butterflies. They had recently relocated to Oklahoma from Wisconsin. That makes them true northerners. I live in a small town in Oklahoma, and we don't see too many like true northerners around these parts. Mark worked at the OGE Sooner Power Plant as an instrument and control tech. Dee had an office job at OSU. The couple coached a co-ed softball league together. They were just hunky-dory living the American middle-class life, and together they had one child, a daughter named Francine. Unlike her parents, Francine was not life of the party. She was very quiet, reserved, a bit of a loner, not gloomy, just to herself. She wasn't a total recluse, though. Like, she had some friends, and she had a boyfriend, just not overly bubbly and friendly. The neighbor did an interview, and she said that the steps were good-looking couple, and they had a northern Yankee attitude, though. Whereas the neighbor, her name was Tina, I think Johnson, she deemed herself a redneck and actually complained that the steps were not redneck enough for her liking. Wow. Welcome to Oklahoma, baby. So that neighbor, Tina Johnson, also gives her definition of a redneck. And she says a redneck is someone who just sort of lets it all hang out. We'll circle back to that, guys. So police say they take a statement from Francine. She was visibly shaken up and very upset. They don't actually get around to interviewing her till about 9 a.m. And when Francine was questioned about what she'd done the day and night before, she said she'd been hanging out with her friend Cindy Wynn. Then Francine went to work until about 9 p.m. They go back to Cindy's house. The girls hang out till like 11-ish. And then Francine went to go ask her parents if she could stay the night at Cindy's. Francine's mom said yes, and off Francine went. Francine said she didn't make it home till a little bit after six-ish in the morning to get ready for work. And it's when she got home that morning that she saw some blood on her parents' doorknob. When she turned the knob to open the door, it was unlocked, which was really unusual because her parents always locked their door. Of course, when she opened the door, she saw her parents had been brutally murdered and then runs to the neighbor's house and asks them to call 911. After her police interview, her aunt came from Kansas to pick her up. 
Francine's boyfriend, Frank, came to the police department. Police wanted to speak to him before Francine spoke to him, just to see if he had anything to say or something that didn't align with what Francine was telling them. Wow. Remember when you could talk to somebody before they talked to their, like, significant other? This was definitely before cell phones, guys. This is 1988. That kind of stuff don't happen these days. So Frank is said to have been a really simple country boy. He even came with his own set of boots and a pickup truck. Frank? kept contradicting himself about like really little things so like he contradicted himself even about where he lived and what he was doing that night it basically came down to he was at home all alone by himself that night and when asked about weaponry he did in fact have a 22 caliber rifle the same kind from the crime scene so police ask frank for his gun so they can test it for forensic evidence and frank of course turns it in and then they have to let him go because they don't have a reason to keep him, right? In the meantime, CSI gets to work processing the crime scene. They were extremely thorough, but it took a lot of time and the alarm had to stay on beeping forever. But while they were processing the master bedroom, they came across something very bizarre. It was a picture of the Strep family and it had clearly not been taken too long before the crime. Like you could tell by the age of everybody in the photo. The picture is called the quote, flying W, end quote. And it is a photo of Mark D and Francine. Now, Francine's in the middle doing a handstand. Her legs are like, you know, up in the air in a V shape. And on each side of her, her parents are holding her by her ankles so that she can, you know, hold this pose. Mark's on one leg, D's on the other. Nothing crazy, except they're all butt naked, the whole family. And that was just the start. They find many, many more nude photos. I don't think any of the family photos had any kind of sexuality to them. You know what I'm saying? It was just like normal family stuff other than they were all naked. Inside the master bedroom closet, though, was a plethora of VHS tapes and I think some other nude photos that were more risque. But like I said, I don't think any of those photos had Francine in them. None of the sex stuff. Back at the station, investigators gather all the TVs and VHS players that they can drudge up and they start going through these tapes. Dubbed in the middle of some of these videos are Mark and Dee having sex in like hotels and stuff. And according to Mark's coworker who does a blog called Power Plant Men, he says that some of the videos also had footage of Francine in her bedroom and bathroom unaware that she was being filmed. Um, he also said that Mark and D were possibly swingers. Maybe some of these videos had footage of, you know, them swinging or other couples. That is also, like I said, just a blog that his coworker said. So I don't know. But boy, did that spread through this small town like a wildfire. And the people in Stillwater in 1988 were flabbergasted. They just thought that these homemade sex tapes and naked pictures must have been something to do with their murders. And maybe Francine had been in an unsafe environment. So police call Francine back in and they asked her, about the nude picture of her and her parents. Remember the quote flying W picture? And she explained that her family was part of a nudist camp in Hutchinson, Kansas, which is only, it's, it's less than two hours from Stillwater. So the rumor spread all over town and people are freaked the hell out about it. Um, because remember, this is 1988, y'all. When the police went to the nudist camp to try and get information about any potential members, they couldn't. It was completely private. 
most members did not partake in the lifestyle like full time because they had careers and family and lives to protect. And, you know, they live below the damn Mason Dixon line. So that's not going to fly. So they will not budge on like, you know, just if there was any type of like close friendships or any like animosity, any reason why somebody a part of the lifestyle or that camp would want to harm the steps. I want to just go ahead and say that people consider the steps extracurricular activities to be quote, living a double life. I don't think they were living a double life necessarily. I think maybe they had a unique private life and some fetishes. I just think it was just disturbing and too much for this small Southern Baptist community college town in Oklahoma that they lived in. Okay, remember when I said I wanted to circle back and talk about what Tina Johnson said about being a redneck is, quote, um, letting it all hang out, end quote. Girl, The steps got you beat by a long shot on letting it all hang out. So when you enter the steps bedroom where the crime took place, you can see whomever committed this crime shot off five live rounds into the room. But four of them ricocheted to different parts of the bedroom like they missed. Um, Only one of them hit Mike in the neck, which immediately paralyzed him. It didn't kill him immediately, but it paralyzed him so he couldn't move. D must have went for the phone and the perpetrator actually ripped that phone from the wall and then proceeded to stab D 19 times before returning to stab Mike nine times. Police did a luminol test to see where any cleaned blood had been on the other parts of the house. And when they sprayed the hallway and looked at the floor with a black light, they could clearly see two sets of bloody footprints, one going from the hallway to the back door and then one going to the front door. So two people likely committed this crime, which actually made more sense because it wouldn't have been easy to overpower both D and Mike steps at the same time if they had to, like if both of them came at you to fight, I I just, you know, they're not tiny people. They're not like super overweight. They're just not like little string beans. So police need a statement from Cindy. That was Francine's friend. And they call Cindy in for a written one. They said they want to do a written one because sometimes people divulge more specific information. Cindy wrote that that night she asked Francine if she would give Randall a ride to the basketball game. So Randall is Cindy Wynn's boyfriend and Francine would not give Randall a ride to the basketball game because her parents would get mad at her if she had given Randall a ride. And that is because Randall is black. Like I said, you guys, that is the way Stillwater was in like 1988. So not only would Francine's parents not let Randall even ride in the car, Cindy's parents kicked her out for dating a black guy. So the police are thinking maybe Randall did this as retaliation for the steps being racist. Cindy had said after Francine got off work, they went to Randall's and then they went to go see a friend at Boomer State Park before going back to Cindy's house and like crashing. They set an alarm though for 630. When Cindy was at the police station, she actually gave police a name of a guy that she thought could have done this. Joe Anthony. Joe Anthony was Francine's ex-boyfriend. And according to Cindy, she thinks he could have done this because Francine's parents just didn't like Joe and they made Francine break up with him. Joe had a very punk rock alternative style. His nails were painted. He wore black clothes. He was like just strange. He had tall, weird hair, the whole get up. He even wore white makeup sometimes. So Cindy throws his name out there. Maybe he had something to do with it, right? Angry about the breakup possibly. At this point, there are several potential leads and suspects. Could Cindy and Francine's boyfriends have done this? 
Did they do it together? Did Joe do this? And then Francine let him into the home. Did this have to do with the steps alternative lifestyle? I don't know. So next police decide to bring in and talk to Joe. Joe knew he was there about Francine and her parents murder most likely. So when they asked him who he thought could have done it, he for one as punk rock alternative as he was, come on, it's 2022. Like they were acting like, Oh my God, this guy's a freak. He was so nice, so soft-spoken, so kind, and he said that the steps were really nice people. So police always hold back information about a crime from everybody, right? Like, that way, if the suspect slips up and says something that only them and the killer would know, they know they have the right guy. So in this case, nobody had photos of the crime scene. Um, Nobody in the media knew specifics, like the weapon used, stabs, nothing. Um, so police trying to make sure didn't Joe didn't have any of that information and he genuinely didn't seem to have anything to do with the murders. When asked why he and Francine broke up, his story did not match at all with what Cindy said. According to Joe, the relationship had run its course. And when asked if there was any animosity between him and the steps, he said, absolutely not. They were extremely kind people and they did not judge him based on his appearance. He really liked them. So police are actually more inclined to believe Joe, and that was mostly because they felt Cindy actually sent them in the direction of accusing Joe on purpose. So this makes police take like a really fresh, close look at Cindy. They found Cindy to be deceptive, a really good calculated liar. So police start investigating her and they conduct interviews with people who know her just to, you know, figure out everything they can. Cindy has told some classmates she was with Randall the night of the murders, but then Michael Reed is called one month after the murders is when he comes to the police station. He said that Cindy seemed super nice. He just met her, I think, like the night before the murders. She was really cool. And then she got really pissed off at Francine's parents because supposedly Francine's parents said Cindy was bad news and they didn't want her hanging out with Francine. So Cindy said that her and Francine were going to take care of Francine's parents. And according to Michael, they'd asked him about guns and gun accessories. The plan was that one of the girls would walk in and shoot each parent in the back and then they'd run out the back door. Then Francine could come back in a short time later and start screaming that somebody else did this. I honestly don't know who Michael was to the girls. Like, I don't know if he was a friend of a friend. I don't know if he was like a mutual acquaintance. I have no idea. All I know though, is that this is why you don't tell random ass strangers like Michael your business if you are going to do something crazy like that. I'm happy that they did though. Just so we're clear. So police decide to hammer at Francine first. They call her in and they think they can get her to crack, which they do. They kept just asking her what happened, what'd she do, and she really was completely unresponsive to officers. Then after they tell her, you know, hey, you're free to go, like you're not under arrest, she kind of relaxed a little bit. This was a tactic that they thought would work. And I think after she relaxed, she couldn't regain that silent composure again. So they asked her if it was something that her and Cindy planned out for a long time. And I don't think they actually expected her to answer the question, but she did. Yeah, yeah, she did. She said no, and that the two of them had planned and decided 
the morning of the murders. Francine refused to give a play-by-play. She would answer questions, but wouldn't say like, okay, okay, this is what happened. You know, one, two, three. Um, They would have to ask her stuff like, so who opened your parents' door? And she did say that Cindy kicked down the door. But, you know, this is not a really effective way to interrogate somebody and get the answers they wanted. So they asked her if she would submit to a polygraph test. She agrees, and it really surprises me because she doesn't pass. She fails miserably. And when they tell her that she failed, now they wanted to know what happened and she just spilled the beans y'all she spilled the beans she said that she and Cindy went in with her 22 caliber gun I think it was her dad's gun that he'd gotten from a friend um, he'd purchased and her dad immediately sat up with his hands up and she just shot him and then she went in on her mom stabbing her over and over and over the last stab wound was so hard to the ribs that she actually could not physically pull the knife out of her mom's body the gun she used like I said it was Mark's gun. He'd bought it from a friend, Jim Posey, for $75. When asked why Francine did this, she said she did it because she hated the nudist colony lifestyle. She hated having to go to the nudist camp and be naked on display. The plan wasn't just to kill Francine's parents. Cindy was supposed to kill Francine's mom and dad, and Francine was actually supposed to kill Cindy's. So police bring Cindy in and Cindy admitted like, yes, I did talk about the murders with Francine and I was there during the murders, but she adamantly denied participating in the murders nor holding any weapons. And Francine did not say that Cindy did. So before giving any sort of official confession, she asked if she could speak to her boyfriend. Cindy did. And the police agree. Of course, police can see, you know, the entire interaction. She's in an interrogation room. And Cindy sits face to face with Randall. They're both in chairs, like knee to knee. And she put her hand on his knees. And she just wanted to tell him what happened herself. He immediately jumps back to where she cannot touch him. He was horrified and scooted away as far as he could from her and then exited the room. Both young women were arrested, and at this point, police obviously ruled out poor Frank. I think they had checked his gun, too, and it didn't match um, the forensics. So Francine is charged with two counts of first-degree murder, and she is sentenced to life in prison. Cindy is found guilty of conspiring to commit murder and being an accessory after the fact. She's sentenced to 10 years. She was facing 30 years, but Cindy took a plea deal. So Cindy got out of prison only after serving seven years. A lot of people who actually knew Cindy and both the girls thought that Cindy was probably the mastermind behind these murders. Like she probably manipulated and coerced Francine into doing them, but never admitted direct culpability, just conspiring. So yeah, Cindy got seven years, even though it was probably kind of her egging Francine on when just the wrong people meet at the wrong time in their lives. So the thing about Francine and Cindy is Francine was quiet and reserved into herself and Cindy was loud and an attention seeker and she was known to lie and literally look for drama. Francine was extremely low key, unlike Cindy. A lot of townies think that clearly Mark and Dee's lies and sins and alternate lifestyle had caught up with them. I definitely think it's a bizarre lifestyle, but I probably would have moved the hell out. You know what I'm saying? I think the time period and part of the country that this crime took place in must have made for salacious gossip in that town. 
So in 2009, Francine actually earned her associates in business in prison. She's a model prisoner, no drug use, no acts of violence. Um, She's just a model prisoner. She was incarcerated before the 85% ruling, and that is where violent offenders have to serve 85% of their sentencing. However, she's been denied parole every time she goes to the parole board. She is housed in the Maybell Bassett Correctional Center. And according to Mike's blog, Francine is believed to not even have attended her 2012 parole hearing and possibly not her 2015 one either. Wow. When I first read about this crime, as soon as I heard Frank had a 22 caliber rifle, I was like, oh shit, it was her boyfriend, Frank. Never would I have guessed it was Francine. I hope a review for the motive of this case is revisited. I think that Francine had so much potential. I wonder if she'd like maybe been, I don't know, just like undergoing some things in her life. Maybe she did find the nudist colony to be completely traumatic. A lot of people who knew the family really do believe Cindy coerced Francine though into killing her parents. And I just think that's so awful. Okay, so before I go, I want to tell you one more thing. It's a story that Mark's coworker Mike says really changed his impression of Mark and stuck with him like forever. So one day, Mike, Mark, and some other coworkers are driving from Stillwater from the plant that they work at to Tulsa for some on-job training they needed. They were in a company vehicle and everything. And after the training, Mark said that he wanted to drive around Tulsa for a bit. Um... Mike wasn't super thrilled about this idea, but the men all just sort of reluctantly agree. Mark pretends to just be aimlessly picking directions for the coworker who was driving. So he'd like point and be like, oh, why don't we turn there? Oh, yeah, take a left up here. That looks cool. And he just so happened to accidentally drive them into a strip club. Mark's coworkers were horrified and they refused to go in and were totally taken aback that Mark even suggested it. Uh, I mean, all of them were married and they were in a company vehicle. Um, None of them partook in things like that. So they were like, oh my God, they were just horrified. Um, Mike says that Mark was not pleased that none of them wanted to go into the strip club and Mike was like, dude, something is wrong with that guy. And he literally said in his interview that it was kind of his way of knowing something just wasn't right about Mark. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to Storytime Slayer podcast. Don't forget, if you want to subscribe, you will get a bonus episode ad free. And please feel free to send me your suggestions for subscription websites like Patreon or Stitcher. I'm trying to decide. And you can send those emails and case requests to storytimepods at gmail.com. Bye.